Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to History Worth Repeating. L.P. Hartley wrote that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. My name is Barbara Brooks and I'm a Professor of History at the University of Otago. And my name is Sonia Tiernan and I'm the Eamon Cleary Professor of Irish Studies also at the University of Otago. And together over this series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating, especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored or not deemed worthy of entry into the history books. So, welcome to episode five, and we're absolutely thrilled to have a special guest with us today. We have Dame Fiona Kidman, who I think will need no introduction to many listeners, but just to remind us of just some of uh, the attributes and experience that Fiona Kidman has. Fiona has published over 30 books, which span novels, poetry, nonfiction and a play. Her latest book, All the Way to Summer, which I have to say, Fiona, I've just started reading and it's absolutely wonderful, includes new and previously published short stories and was published to mark her 80th birthday, which I think happened during lockdown. So the subject of our discussion today is Fiona's book, This Mortal Boy, which won numerous prestigious awards, including the New Zealand Heritage Prize for Fiction, the New Zealand Book Lovers Award and Acorn Foundation Fiction Prize. And that's just to name but a few. So before we discuss, begin discussing the actual book, Fiona, could you just give listeners a brief overview of the story? Yes, thank you for that. Um, the story is, is that of Albert Black, who was a young man who immigrated to New Zealand from Belfast in 1953 and he was said to be a quiet and gentle boy, and on the whole, that was how he behaved in New Zealand. Unfortunately, in 1955, he went to Auckland and became part of a group who are known as bodgies and widgies in the milk bar culture uh, of Auckland at that time. He and another young man got into an altercation Albert was um, quite small and slight compared to the other man and there was a knife fight in an Auckland milk bar and Alan Shark, the other, the, the other young man, died as a result of that. Albert was charged with murder and he died, he died in Mount Eden Prison uh, six months later. He was hanged for murder. My view has been from the beginning that this was probably a case of manslaughter mm-hmm. rather than murder, and that's really what I argue for essentially in, in this book. And just in the book as well, so obviously this is this is quite different, I think, from a lot of your other works. That And we can see, of course, from the cover that it says, This Mortal Boy, a novel. How close is the fact and the fiction in this novel? 
Essentially, it's, it is a true story. Um, mm. I, it's as nearly as I could make it, it is a true story. And there are a lot of records. And there are actually people who, who were alive and who were actually witnesses to the incident in the Auckland milk bar. Um, and so I've, I've had the benefit of being able to draw on a great deal of, of truthful matter. When Albert first arrived in New Zealand, he actually lived just out of Wellington at, at a suburb called Nainai, and there are still members of that, the family who he boarded with, living there, so I've been able to interview them. Mm. I don't... So, but in the end, it's... You reimagine how people feel and think, and so that is that is what, as a novelist, I've done. Um, some of the things that I discovered about the family in Belfast, I went to Belfast to research the novel, and I discovered quite a lot about the family, but not enough to be absolutely certain. And I had to invent that because they don't. The family are untraceable. Or I should say, I have been able to trace some family members since the book was published. But there are so there are some really fine lines that are blurred here between what is exactly true and what what I've imagined. The actual facts of the case in New Zealand are very close to what happened, and I was fortunate enough to have access to the transcripts of the trial, which are very revealing. So a lot what what the what the witnesses say in the in in the courtroom drama which unfolds is pretty much exactly as it happened. It's so interesting to me, Fiona, because uh, there's some parallels with my own family who came in 1951 and I was born in 1955, so I feel kind of close to Albert Black as a, an Irish immigrant to New Zealand. And I just, the idea that he was called Paddy, do you think that was common, um, that any Irish person would have been called Paddy, or that's just part of your imagining how things no, were? No, no, he was called Paddy. He was on called Paddy. On the ship coming out yep. um, from on the Captain Cook, I think, was the ship, um, his friends started calling him Paddy. As, um, they were mostly English, and he was he was the Irish boy. Yeah, and so and they, that was, and I think there, there was quite a common sort of um, uh, it's sort of a common nickname for Irish people. I should say mm. that I was I was fifteen at the time that he died, so um, I was, and I my father is Irish. Um, he's an Irish immigrant. He was actually born in the UK, but like Albert, he was a Protestant um, Irish person. And so I felt a strong sense of identifying, really, with how how my father had felt about coming to New Zealand and some of the assumptions that were made about about Irish people. He tended, my father tended to try and behave more like an Englishman Right. So, yeah. So, and he spoke a kind of BBC received English, <laughs> but I identified really a lot with Albert through my through my father and my father's yearning for for what he thought of as home, which was with his great with his aunts in County Cork. Right. 
Um, just, I suppose, probably I'm thinking as well, you can see why this story resonates with you. But how did you happen upon it in the beginning to, like, what actually inspired you to start researching and writing this particular account? Was there something that, that triggered it? I think there were several things that came together, really, at, at one particular time. I read a newspaper account of the remembering the death of, of Albert Black, or the jukebox killer, as he was known. And, I, and it triggered a whole lot of things in me. Um, the more, when I read it, I thought, this doesn't really seem right. And I, I read it, I was interested enough to read a little bit more about it. And I thought, this doesn't really sound as if it was an intentional act of, of killing. Um, and I remembered it because I, because I was 15 and because the whole story of the jukebox killer was headline news throughout the latter part of 1955. So there was that too. And I thought, gosh, this feels really quite close to me. And the fact, again, of my, my father and his background. And I also had another thing that had been in the back of my mind for a really long time. It wasn't just this, but I have five amazing grown-up, adult, beautiful grandsons. Mm-hmm. And, this, and I have a son. And as a mother and a grandmother, I have thought over the years how thankful I was that they got through their teens without making some terrible mistake. I mean, they were just, they're just kids, you know. They used to behave like any yes. other kids. Yeah. <laughs> I but, think, yeah, that, yeah, it's very that, that moment, that fear that, that they might slip and make a mistake and everyone's lives would be changed mm-hmm. forever. And so from a novelist's point of view, there's that element that I th- I'd been looking for a kind of framework for that idea for some time, and it just occurred to me, well, that's it, really. Yeah, and it's beautifully done. Mm. So um, one of the interesting things, Fiona, that I, I think people have um, perhaps forgotten about, too, is the welcome, you know, the family that looked after him in Nainai, and, and yeah. you know, a, a woman on her own with a family making money through having borders. Uh, yep. And then the boarding house in Auckland. So itinerant young men often stayed in such uh, places, I think. Um, how did you get into that kind of detail about that, those boarding arrangements? Well, the Nine-Eye place is, is, was actually a house, was just a house. house just yeah. an ordinary state house. And I know quite a lot about Nine-Eye because my husband taught there for 35 years. Right. So, so and I, I, have, I, I know I've met a member of the family with whom he boarded. In fact, the little girl who danced on his shoes at Christmas time is I've met and interviewed, and so that's been really oh. nice. But the boarding houses in Auckland... Well, again, there's a kind of boarding house where we all stayed in the 50s and 60s. I mean, if you went to Auckland, you didn't go and stay in a flash hotel. You stayed in a boarding house. And my mother and I lived in a boarding house during World War II while my father was um, in camp in the Air Force um, at Hobsonville. And so I've heard my mother... I, I, I can't honestly say I've got a very distinct recollection of, of 
staying in the boarding house and more seen through my mother's eyes. But um, there were a lot of boarding houses there. And in the I remember in the early 1960s, Ian, my husband and I went to went to stay in Auckland and we didn't have a booking anywhere. And so Ian said, oh, we'll take a... a get a taxi to take us up and we'll stop at a likely-looking place and see if we can go into it. And we got to one and Ian said, I like the look of that. And the taxi driver said, I don't know about that. But Ian said, oh, I'll go in and see. And while he was in looking, getting, he was given a booking very quickly, um, the taxi driver said to me, you don't look like the kind of young woman who wants to go into that place oh my goodness <laughs> so anyway to cut a long story short he Ian had got this reservation and we went in and then we saw the room and we realized that it was really a brothel and it was new paper <laughs> under the sheets and so forth and and so I, and we we made a very hasty exit <laughs> at that point but I, I I mean I have seen the kinds of places that that Albert stayed in. It's always good experiences, though, for your next further short stories, I'd imagine, Fiona. Um, can we go back to the actual case, the death of Alan Jacques? Because you, you mentioned already that from your perspective, you, you look at it as manslaughter rather than murder, which, of course, would have changed the whole context of what happened to Albert Black, because then he would have been sentenced to life rather than a sentence to death. So, therefore, he may even still be, be with us now that we, can, we could be talking to him about it as well. So, give us an idea of why you think that happened. And I suppose I'm kind of thinking about the moral panic that was happening with adolescents in New Zealand as part of this in the background in the 1950s. Do you think this is why he gets so harshly treated? Yes, I, I do. I, I'm, I'm quite sure of that. The... Um there had been, um, I think one of the things that's interesting about the whole death penalty thing is that it had been on and off throughout a good many years uh, in New Zealand. From 1935, when there was a Labour government, the death penalty had been um, suspended. Uh, but all death penalties were commuted between 1935 and 1950. In 1949... Um, the Labour government finally, after that very long period, um, was replaced by Sid Holland's national government. And Sid Holland was a moralist, and there had been a particularly unpleasant murder in, in 1949. And um, on the strength of it, because the death penalty had been commuted, the National Party said, we'll re- reintroduce the death penalty. And so it was, and so then over the next um, seven years, I think it was, um, between 1951 and 1957, mm. there were 80 executions. And then there was a period, then the Labour government got in and it was suspended again. And, the, and then, and so it was really what government was in power, whether yeah. or not you got hanged. Mm. So when Sid Holland came in in 1949, he was he immediately commissioned what they called the Matengarb Report, which was a report into the morals of teenagers. And that 
Mason Garb report was sent to every family in New Zealand who had who received a family benefit. In other words, every family that had children at that stage was sent a copy of the Mason Garb report, which said, you know, that teenagers were out of control and that there was terrible moral issues in in New Zealand, and that was. That had been commissioned by Sid Holland's very close friend, Oswald Meisengarb. Um, so there was this whole moral panic mm-hmm. that was had overtaken New Zealand at the time. It's, it's, it's part of the baby boom, isn't it, that you know, there's so many young people and actually New Zealand's doing quite well economically so they have money to spend on parties and going to cafes mm-hmm. and dancing. Um so I think there's a big generational shift going on um, at that time, and he gets, you know, made a scapegoat, really. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. I think so. Um, if I could just go back briefly to to Alan Shark, he mm-hmm. was a, he was he was the person who died, and he was a victim of circumstances too. He'd been a forced child migrant which we have a very poor record of. Like Australia and New Zealand, we took these child migrants which were being shipped off from the UK. He was a very angry, bitter young man who was desperate to go back to the UK. But he was always also a very big guy, and as far as, as I understand, he'd done compulsory military training, which Albert hadn't. He didn't have the same um, physical and fighting skills that um, that Alan Shark, who called himself Johnny McBride, the character in the Mickey's Oh, yes, he yeah. did that I beautifully, think, yeah. actually. It was so interesting and a reminder mm. of the popularity of that literature. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. and also, I think it's interesting that the moral panic was so great that there were actual book burnings happening and um, books were being wow. taken out of bookshops in New Zealand by the police and burned. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think... Um, under the police offences act, you know, it was a you you couldn't have comics with people with masks. That's right. So they got rid of Lone Ranger comics. So there there was quite mm-hmm. a, a and a, a particular aversion to American popular culture mm. at the time. I think. Uh, uh, totally, yes. Yeah. But, you know, there was there was this this thing about the Yanks being a, as they called them being being over here during the war, you know, and, um, taking all our girls and. Yeah. That kind of thing. So Alan Shark was, you know, the reason that I, I, that I argue in the book for manslaughter is that I believe that Alan Shark was killed by Albert Black, that it was self-defense, that there was self-defense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that Albert was in great fear of his life and... The, the events leading up to that um, suggest that. Yeah, and I just wonder as well, because you do make that argument very strong, like it is very strong when you start reading it from that kind of fictional account, it makes it much clearer actually that Albert Black is very scared and you, you can see why it's, it's self-defence and also actually that he certainly doesn't set out to murder him. It seems to be, as you've kind of called it, that unlucky, you know, strike that he got him. Do you, do you think, because it has happened in recent years, that there's been a number of, 
Irish people who've been granted posthumous pardons who have been executed. Now, really, this is more about clearing their name. Do you think that there's any possibility of a posthumous pardon for Albert Black or would you hope for one? I'd love to think that that might be possible. Um, I, I have looked at uh, this. There has been pending this Criminal Cases Review Commission, um, which Andrew Little was setting up, up and I think it is now operative. Right. Um, I, I, I haven't, can't say I've had a lot of interest from the from the government, much as I, much as I love them, I'm not. Um, they haven't really shown a lot of interest, and somehow the, the last year or so has been—I don't know—it's been. It's, we've had such a, a time clouded in New Zealand here, haven't we, by the mm. mosque killings and then White Island? And yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I haven't given up on it. Mm. Well, that's—you know—that's so good because I, I think the book does make a very clear case that this mm. is a particular moment, yeah. doesn't it, that that the death penalty is in place. Mm. And we've been so long without the death penalty, it's quite shocking now to think mm. how miscarriages of justice yeah. occurred. Because, uh, yeah, actually, you've even given an account as well of another man who's in on a life sentence sharing the same prison with Albert Black, who has very clearly murdered somebody, and he is an executed. So there's yeah. all of these things, isn't there? Well, it was because of that man, who, that was the man who committed this particularly gross and offensive um, um, rape and murder in Wellington yeah. that that Holland decided to put this whole process in motion. But interestingly, and he escapes you know, that, the death that, penalty. <laughs> that that man actually was released in. Um, oh, I don't know, I forget. He was befriended by a bookster, an Auckland bookseller. He was eventually released from prison, married, had a child, and led apparently quite a blameless life until mm. a fairly early death. So that, you know, the powers of, what's the word, rehabilitation or... Yeah, or, yeah, so actually even for him, we wouldn't have wanted the death penalty. Mm. Well, I wouldn't want the. De- I don't believe in the death penalty. No, there's some no, people no. who. Yeah. There's some people who, if they die, I think it's probably not a bad thing. But I don't actually <laughs> believe that we. Yeah, that we, we should, should be do, doing it. No, yeah. we yeah. should be doing that. We're nearly at uh, the end of our time, uh, Fiona. Um, I, I think you convey the mother's anxiety, which was, you know, clearly the thing that you were keen to transmit at the outset. And, and did you find that difficult, thinking about across the ocean? About mm. the... You know, that she's actually on the other side of the world. I mean, we, we might oh, lie yeah. in our beds worrying about our sons. Oh, or, yes, yes, I, absolutely. And going to Belfast was... And just walking, just going to the house, I knocked on the door of the house where our... Albert was born and, and, and things like not there was nobody home but I mean just to, to walk those streets and mm. to to think about and a, a, again my own father's migrant experience it just too far I, if there was just a moment left I'd just like to say that I've also been really glad that I can give some light to Albert Black's daughter about mm. what really happened to her father um and she has been very supportive of this book. Well, that's fantastic. Mm. 
Yeah, so um, I suppose like the, on the final thing, is that the end of Albert Black for you or has the publication triggered more discussion? I, I'm presuming this is when, when you reference his daughter. Um, has anything else happened from this? Yes, well, I, I, I'm now in... We, we, the, because of the publicity for the book in Ireland, yeah. um, the her, she, EH now has contact with her birth father's family, okay. and I've learned a lot more about... I, I didn't get the father exactly right. Um, in, he didn't go to war at all. I had assumed that that was the case because of the when the younger brother was born, but... Um, he was, his father was apparently a very, he was a profoundly deaf man mm. and quite, and very quiet. Uh, Albert's granny had actually provided the money for the £10 POM affair out to New Zealand. Um, the, and Albert was descri- described by um, the relative that I'm in touch with as having been a very quiet and gentle boy. His aunt is still alive, and this relative that I'm in touch with, um, it's it's her nephew, the the nephew of of who of of an aunt who still remembers mm. him clearly and knew him. Well, and, um, Fiona, we're we're. Um you know, you, you, well, we're nearly at the end, and we just want to say, you know, you you haven't been able to rescue Albert Black from death, obviously, but you have been able to make connections that are so important yes. now yeah. for those who knew him, and that's a tremendous thing, and we think this is a history well worth repeating. So thank you for today. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you. Thanks to you both. ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.